Now, we're studying presently in a topical vein because we are concerned about this whole matter of giving as given in the scriptures, the section, uh, and not just giving, but finances in the, in the scriptures. We're spinning off of the principles that are found here at the end of chapter 11 of Proverbs. We're going to get to uh, those particular principles uh, just a uh, little later, uh, the principles that are contained in, in the text. But meanwhile, we spun off on uh, another little vein here as we started talking about this whole matter of, of financial principles found in the Word of God. I think I forgot my pencil, uh, Rich. Oh, here it is. I just had misplaced it. It's too early this morning. I don't know why, but I got it. Okay, now we have come to the place where we've begun to talk about the principle of giving. And in terms of giving, there are a number of things that you need to keep in mind. And we started out with giving is investing with God. Secondly, we're to give God the best. Thirdly, we are to give sacrificially and when we give it is to be planned. Incidentally, let me just uh, finish up on that matter of planned giving. Um, I would suggest to you that you should never give if there is a high-powered pitch for money. Don't ever give emotionally. Even if, even if you are moved by someone's uh, sob story uh, as an offering is being taken, don't give then. Go home pray about it, think about it, and uh, then uh, when you're certain you have the mind of God, then give. But I think it's a high time that we clip the wings of the guy who gets people emotionally stirred and then as a result of that emotional stirring uh, persuades them to empty their wallets. Giving in Scripture always was a was a very calculated thing based upon God's prompting not upon man's prompting now of course there were times in the Old Testament where people gave uh, what seemed to be spontaneously uh, in other words the time for the offering had come now let's let's uh, take it and the people exploded with generosity but if you look at the text carefully, you realize that, that they had time between the time that the offering was announced and the time that the offering was taken to think about it, to pray about it, to get God's mind on the matter. And I think that, that it's important uh, that, we, that we give 
in a systematic way. Uh, sometimes God will lay upon our hearts to give more, but we should not do it just because uh, there has been an emotional appeal, appeal or just because there is, a, there is a clear need. Never give that way. Now, I know there's a lot of people who count on that uh, matter of the emotions of the people, and uh, they get very upset when anybody talks this way. But I'm saying to you that, that uh, Scripture, if you check all of the texts regarding giving, you'll find that by and large, giving is always a very rational thing. That people think it through, and they decide. And what you are to do, according to the, the principles that Scripture give, is to lay by in store as God has prospered you and give on the first day of the week. And uh, so I would say at, at least, you know, uh, wait a week or wait three or four days before you respond to that need. Make sure you're not giving, giving in, uh, in a, an emotional manner. Not only that, but Paul, in writing to the Corinthian church, said this, you are not to give of necessity. You're not to give of necessity. You're not to give just because there's a need. You hear it? You're not to give just because there's a need. Nor are you to give grudgingly. But you're to give hilariously. You're, that's the, the, the word that is used, uh, used there is the word from which we get our English word, hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver, a cheerful giver. God loves someone who, who uh, uh, just gets excited about God and as a result gives. You never want to give because you're excited about a project. Give because you're excited about God. Okay? And that, that way you'll keep on track. So remember that, that true giving, biblical giving, is always planned. All right? Here's another. It is to be generous. Now we gave you all the scriptures for those last week. Let's go to look at Proverbs 11, uh, which is our text, and uh, just remind you of the, ver the verses 24 and 25 where it says, There is one who scatters, yet increases all the more. There is one who withholds what is justly due, but it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous. He who waters will himself be watered. Now, I need to say at this point that when we're talking about uh, the, the idea of giving and receiving, uh, keep in mind that the receiving end of it is entirely in the sovereign hands of God, and reward may not necessarily be earthly. You never give to get an earthly reward. God does not necessarily repay in kind. That is, you give him a dollar, he gives you five. I know there's some people that, that um, have a theology um, of prosperity that uh, tries to teach that. But the thing you have to realize is that God makes promises and God's got a long time to fulfill his promises. Therefore, it may not be an immediate return. It may be. If God sees your good steward, sees your attitude of heart, 
sees that you gave not to get, but gave because you love Him, because you're excited about God, uh, God may prosper you now. And God can do that. But the important thing is to realize He may not, even in His prosperity now, it may be spiritual prosperity far more than material prosperity. God's value system is different than ours. So we're like children. And you know good and well that uh, a child will make foolish choices. Uh, you offer a, a small child before he has a chance to understand the difference in value. You offer a small child a dime or a nickel. He'll look at the dime, that thin little dime, that small little dime. He'll look at the larger nickel and he'll say, I'll take the nickel. Why? Simply because the the, uh, the, it looks to his eye by his evaluation as though it's worth more when you know it's only worth half as much. Now God sometimes will hand us something in the way of spiritual blessing that is far more valuable than a few measly dollars. And God's doing you a favor. And you look and say, no, I'd rather have the dollars. Only because you're immature. So keep in mind that God does not promise in Scripture that if you give a dollar, you're going to get five. But generally speaking, there is a principle of harvest. And the principle of harvest is this, that when you plant, there is a reaping that gives you more than you planted. And that's the principle that's being given here. And it's saying on that basis, just on the basis of sowing and reaping, understand that you can't outgive God. And therefore, go ahead and generously sow because God wants to generously give back to you, though maybe not in kind. Second uh, Corinthians 9 Second Corinthians chapter 9, of course, First and Second Corinthians have a great deal to say about giving, the reason being that the Apostle Paul um, found these people somewhat reluctant to be involved in this great enterprise of collecting monies to be taken to relieve the uh, persecuted believers in the city of Jerusalem. And so he gives them quite a few uh, principles in this regard. In verses 5 and 6, he says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift, that the same might be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now, earlier, the Apostle Paul had informed these people that um, they were taking this collection and uh, he had urged them to commit themselves to give a certain amount. Um, he is going around collecting the money, and they didn't have money orders in that day, so they had to do it in person. And he sends his emissaries on ahead to prompt these people to have the offering ready uh, so that when he comes there, he is able to take the money then on the remaining part of his journey. But he points out here that there is a danger of covetousness. Covetousness is simply the idea of wanting more. You want more than you have. 
Now, because the people were thinking this way, the Apostle Paul says to them in verse 6, Now this I say, He who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully uh, shall also reap bountifully. He's asking them to be generous. God wants us to be generous. Now, number six. Giving is to be a demonstration of love. Not law. Now, I have never yet had a person get excited about tithing when I have explained to them what was involved in the tithe as far as Israel was concerned. People can so glibly say, well, I think that we ought to tithe, all right? I would say that tithing is maybe a, a point of reference. Uh, a tithe, 10%, perhaps is a good starting point in terms of our giving. But you have to understand that there were three tithes in Israel. And by the time you add up all the tithes, you have approximately one-third of a person's income. And if you look in the Old Testament, you'll discover that when Abraham gave to Melchizedek, he gave tithes of all that he possessed. Now, a tithe is 10%. Plural, tithes, is at least twice that, at least 20%. And in the, in the economy of Israel, the tithe was the national income tax. And it amounted to almost a third of the income. You think that you're taxed? Take a look again. You know, Israel was well taxed. It, was, it amounted to a third of the income. And that was what was so awesome, was because there was an ecclesiastical tax on the people of Israel. And uh, when, when Solomon was building all of his building projects, he levied additional political taxes on people. And that's why the tax burden was so heavy. And then his son decided he was going to raise the taxes all the more. Really keep the people on, the to on their toes. So you can imagine the people of Israel in the time of, of, uh, Rehob uh, in, in, yeah, in the time of Rehoboam were almost taxed to death. And uh, it's no wonder that they were squawking. And it's no wonder the kingdom split as a resu result of that high taxation. But you see, it all began with the, with the national tithe. And the tithe, of course, was for the care of the house of the Lord and the full support of the entire tribe of Levi uh, who had no land and no inheritance so that they uh, were, if you please, uh, they got their inheritance from God. And God prompted people to give and so on. So when a person says, well, I, I believe in tithing, you have to be a little careful about that because they don't really believe in tithing unless you're given uh, 30%. So in actual, in actual fact, I think that we need to realize that we're not talking about a tithe. We're talking about a principle of giving in the New Testament that is prompted by the Holy Spirit, guided by God, guarded by His Word, and it's a principle of giving according to God's grace. God has been gracious unto you. God wants you to be godly. And therefore, God 
uh, by His Holy Spirit, provides you with a kind of grace. Grace giving is not giving because there is an obligation. Grace giving is simply giving because of a response to God's grace. And when we respond to God's grace, we, we understand what the Apostle Paul was saying in the, uh, the word that he gave to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He said that the Lord Jesus Christ himself said that you have received much and therefore on the basis of what you've received from God, you respond by giving. Freely you have received freely give. We need to realize that God wants us to wants us to demonstrate a reciprocal love. God in his love sent his only son to die for our sins. God in his love has provided us with his word to guide us. God in his love has provided the Holy Spirit to indwell us and to prompt us and to teach us and to comfort us and to help us and to urge us along our journey. God in his love has provided more than we would ever need to get into heaven and to live here on earth. He in his love has been generous and he has, he has done it because he loves us. And we should respond in kind by giving according to love. We should give as, as we recognize that God has blessed us not only materially but especially spiritually we should be willing to give. Now, in 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 8, we have something of this kind of principle. Second Corinthians 8, verse 8. I am not speaking this as a command. He's talking to them about giving now. He says, and I'm not speaking this as a command. I'm not telling you that this is what you must do in the sense that you have a legal obligation, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. In other words, I'm not asking you to give as a matter of law, but I'm asking you to give as a matter of love. And these people around you, even the, the Macedonians out of their poverty, have given because they love that much. And he says to them, how much do you love? Do you love enough to be willing to give? Then it says, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. The backdrop of the whole thing is, look at the grace of God. So you see, it's a combination of, I like to say, love-grace. Because grace-giving and love-giving are the same kind of giving. You respond to God's grace. And as you respond to God's grace, then there is that generosity that comes from the heart. So it's to be a demonstration of love, not a demonstration of law. Number seven. Now, I said a moment ago that you do not give. I said it carefully. Listen to it again. You do not give just because there's a need. But that does not mean that it's illegitimate to respond to a need. 
The need is not to be the primary motive in your giving. That's why you don't want to give emotionally. And that guy that gets up there and harangues you and shows you pictures of starving people and all of that and then begs on his bended knee for you to empty your wallet, that's wrong kind, that's the wrong way to take an offering. The right way to take an offering would be to say to those people, all right, you've seen the need. Now having seen the need, I want you to go home, I want you to pray about it, and I want you to respond to what God tells you to do. But there's nothing wrong with knowing a need. I used to have a, used to have a real battle uh, between uh, George Mueller and D.L. Moody. Because D.L. Moody would give people, as he took the offering, a financial report. And he would lay it out to the people. This campaign cost us X number of dollars. X number of dollars are banked for the payment of it. Uh, here's what's left over. That's the way Moody took an offering. And George Mueller didn't believe in telling anybody what the needs were. And uh, so one day they were talking back and forth and, and uh, uh, Mueller said, Moody, you're, you're, you're wrong to tell the people all about your need. Uh, he, said, he said, you should simply have the people pray about the matter. And Moody came back to Mueller and he said, what do you do to see your needs now? Well, we just pray about it. Will you pray about it all by yourself? No. There are others that pray with us. Well, do you tell them what to pray about? Yes. Well, then you tell them what you need, right? Well, yes. Then you do the same as I do. <laughs> now, in essence, uh, it, it may be the way you approach it. Of course, Mueller's got some marvel. There's some marvelous stories about George Mueller as to how even in private, without letting anyone else know, he prayed and God supplied. He was a great man of prayer. But in actual fact, a good many times, when people would say, what are your needs? He would not tell them what they needed in the sense that, well, if you would give $10,000, we would be in good shape. He doesn't do that. But what he says is, well, you pray about it. We have a need for $10,000. I want you to pray about it. So it just depends on your outlook on it. And it, there's, but there's nothing wrong with making a need known. The thing that I object to and the thing that I believe is, not, that is, contrary, is contrary to Scripture is having made known the need, you put a guilt trip on people and try to twist their arm and persuade them that they ought to give and you use all kinds of gimmicks. I'll never forget, I won't mention his name, some of you may know who he is, but I was with a quartet and we were singing at this church and uh, uh, the, the pastor uh, did what he, he, he admitted it, he did what he called priming the pump. And in the process of priming the pump, what he did was he, he reached into his wallet at the time of the offering and he pulls out a large bill and he waves it at the people and says, do as your pastor does and give. And you look down at the offering place, these flat offering places, every one of them had a large bill in it already. So that everybody that that passed, they all got the guilt trip of the pastor having taken this generous gift and given it. Now, I don't know. I, I don't know, so I shouldn't even say this, but I, my carnal nature just allows me to say I always wondered <laughs> if he took it out and used it next week again. You know? <laughs> but nevertheless, 
Then he got up, had the audacity to get up and preach on, be sure your sin will find you out. <laughs> Which incidentally was, a, was a, uh, um, a wrong interpretation of that text according to context anyway. By the way, how many of you know what the text, be sure your sin will find you out, is talking about? Anybody? You know what sin it is? Well, this is a, this is a real, real, um, I want to say, real surprise to most people. Because anybody's ever heard any messages on that? Be sure your sin will find you out. And then they start listing the sins of smoking and cussing and, and this and that. And they go down the list of all the sins that are going to find you out. Now, mind you, I think that the principle that if you commit a sin, it will find you out is, is a true principle. But that particular text, incidentally, is talking about one thing and one thing only. It's saying, here are some of the tribes of Israel that want to stay. Actually, I should put it the other way. I'm upside down here. But they want to stay on the east side of Jordan. And they want to just settle down there. Well, this was already conquered land. <coughs> on the other side of Jordan, the land had all the Amalekites and the, the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Gergesites and all of the rest of them over here. And uh, they were going to have great battles in, in conquering the land. All right? And so God said to them that you that are going to stay over on the east side of Jordan, you go over Jordan with your brothers. Help them conquer the land. And when the land is conquered, then you can go back and settle down and graze your flocks here in this, in this good land. But if you stay over here and don't go over and help your brothers, then your borders are going to be insecure. Because if they, because of your lack of help, fail to conquer the land, then these people over here are going to come over and conquer you and be sure your sin will find you out. All right? So the sin was in not helping their brothers protect their borders. It's a principle of warfare, incidentally. That you put yourself in jeopardy if you do not protect your, your, your borders beyond your, beyond, going beyond your borders. And incidentally, that's precisely what Israel has been trying to do in Lebanon. If you know anything about the topography of the land and the history of the land, you realize that Israel is just following a biblical principle. They need a free Lebanon on their borders to protect them as a buffer zone from Syria. And when they, when Israel, this is off the subject, but it's a lot of fun. <clears throat> when Israel, you've got the Golan Heights, got the Golan Heights over here, you've got the wish I could draw this as good as others. Here's the, the Jerusalem sits over here, Tel Aviv over here. Right up above the Red Sea, the Golan Heights right here. The, the, um, the people in the kibbutz right down here in what's called the Hula Valley, this whole area right in here, which, incidentally, Israel purchased from the Arabs for money. I mean, they came, this was a swamp. And Israel came in, and uh, it had been abandoned by Syria long before, because there was nothing down there. In 1948, when, the, when Israel 
uh, came into the land and had the land at their uh, their disposal because of of the uh, the 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 grant the granting by uh, the League of Nations, the the, the nation of Israel uh, went in here, saw this this swamp, and asked the the Assyrians and the the surrounding people, whoever owned it, if they couldn't purchase that, and they purchased that land fair and square all the way up beyond Dan to the to the Lebanese border. That was all purchased land. It was not occupied land at all. And then they put they put a series of kibbutzes in the area. One of them sits right under the Golan Heights. And the Syrians were lobbing shells in here so that the people who had escaped World War II uh, were living in underground shelters underneath the, the ground. Uh, they just had, they lived there. They went to school there because they were lobbing shells in. In fact, the Israeli government came in and they said, they said, well, what is, uh, what is the uh, 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 reason that you have all these underground things? And uh, they said, well, uh, we, uh, we've, been, we've been bombed. And they said, well, what do you mean? Well, the, they look up and hear all these, these Syrian guns. Every time they would come out, they boom, boom, boom. They were getting blasted. And uh, they said, well, why didn't you tell anybody? Oh, well, we, we just have always lived this way. We, we, we just thought it, this was normal. I mean, they came out of World War II. This was child's play. And they, they were used to a war atmosphere. And it never occurred to them that there was anything really wrong. And so it was a real surprise to the Israeli government that they were under siege constantly. Well, anyway, when in the Six-Day War, what Israel did was, was they they moved the, the border back so that, that uh, in fact, they moved, they moved it almost to Damascus. You remember, boy, I mean, they really sh shone in that, that war, and they were able, and, and uh, an interesting story is that up here, there are all kinds of bunkers, right? All kinds of bunkers along the Golan Heights where the, Israel, uh, where the uh, Syrians had their guns and they had, they had a man in Damascus, a spy, an Israeli spy, um, by the name of Eli Cohen. And Eli Cohen got intelligence information for the Israelis, but in the process moved to a very high position in the Syrian government. Look at, look at down in the Hula Valley. They're, those people are sitting in the shade. They're, they're, they've got it so good. And why don't we do something nice for our poor soldiers up here on the Golan Heights? Why don't we plant a tree by each bunker? <laughs> so when Israel attacked, or when Syria attacked Israel, and Israel then, Israel then decided that they had to defend the, the Golan Heights, they just shot at the trees and they got the bunkers. <laughs> Which wasn't too dumb, really. But what happened then was that what happened was that the, the people, uh, the, the Syrians, they were clear over here right to the doors of Damascus. And Israel, Israel said, look, we're going, to, we're going to allow you to come back to this point. We're going to leave a buffer zone so that we're protected right here. 
and then we're going to move you to this point. Well, you know what Syria did? Syria built their military installation right on the border. And so when, when Israel, when Israel uh, was attacked uh, in the Yom Kippur War, they were attacked from this point. In other words, the Syrians came in here and they, they caught Israel at a bad time. Many of the crack soldiers were, were down in Jerusalem celebrating Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. All they had were a bunch of kids up here. And those kids, they were young, young people. They held the Golan Heights uh, at the cost of their lives. Uh, they were outmanned a hundred to one. And uh, they still held their ground and held Syria until they could get the rest of the, the troops there. But what they did then was they bombed this military installation and moved the border to here. <laughs> and not so dumb. They moved the border to here. And they, the building is still in ruins right there. And the Syrians said to them one time, aren't you going to clean it up? And they said, no way. We want you to see that. And we want you to know that that's what happens when you mess with Israel. And so they've left the ruins right there. It's a great reminder to Syria to be careful. They haven't attacked Israel since in their own land. But you see, the, the, thing, that, the thing that they were doing was preventing their sin from finding them out. They were putting in their borders. And that's what they're trying to do now in Lebanon. They're trying to, trying to persuade uh, somebody to leave a buffer zone where they won't allow terrorists in and all of the rest. And uh, the only way that'll happen, of course, if there's a stable government uh, in all, all of Lebanon, which swings down through there and so on. Anyway, th but that's what the verse, be sure your sin will find you out. So it had nothing to do with giving at all. And so you have to be, you have to be careful uh, when you're interpreting scripture to make sure you read the context. But in any event, God wants us to be generous. In, in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 5 and 6, he says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand uh, your previously promised bountiful gift. It's a, it's a generous gift. It's a demonstration of love, not of law. But I was talking about need, wasn't I? I forgot where I was there for a minute. You can respond to need. I want you to look at Acts chapter 2 for a moment. Acts chapter 2. I want you to understand what happens here. First of all, look at verse uh, 42. And they, that is the 3,000, as many of the 3,000 are still in town, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, doctrine, and to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. These four things were the hallmark of the early church. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They, this was the extent of their fellowship. 
they, they responded as a group with the kind of attitude that a husband and wife are to have in the sense that it's not a matter of this is mine, this is yours, but rather this is ours as a family. And there was a sharing of, of their goods in common. And it says they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now some people have called this Christian communism. Don't believe it. This is not Christian communism. Let me tell you the difference between communism and what happened in the book of Acts. Communism says what is yours is mine. All right? That's communism. That you owe me because I'm a part of the state. I'm a part of the society. Therefore, if you have something, it is jointly owned, held in common, I have as much right to it as you do. That's communism. What happened here was the precise opposite of that. It was a person saying, what is mine is yours. That's not communism. What it is, is a person gladly sharing with another person. And the fact that it was voluntary becomes very clear in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, Barnabas sold a piece of land and uh, as a result of that piece of land being sold apparently was a, a sizable amount of money and he came and laid it at the apostles' feet and uh, uh, honor was given to Barnabas uh, because of that. I mean, people respected him. People thought highly of him. And as a result of that, Ananias and Sapphira decided they wanted the honor. And so they said, we're going to sell a piece of land and do the same. Peter tells them, when it was in your hand, it was yours to do with as you please. The sin of Ananias' fire was not in not giving everything to everybody, but the sin was that they lied about it. And their motive was wrong. And so as a result, they died because they had lied to the Holy Spirit. You can't lie to the Holy Spirit and get away with it. And therefore, Ananias and Sapphira had that land in their hand. They were not required by God by man's law or God's law, by the church's law or by the state's law, they were not required to sell that land and give it. But people were doing this and they were doing it spontaneously. The way it would work is this. They would go to church on a Sunday morning, they would look around them, and they would see that there are a number of people who just downright looked hungry. I began to realize these are my brothers and sisters. I've got this piece of land. I've been holding it for a higher price. And yet here are people in need. There is no way that I can hang on to that land and make myself rich when these people have such a desperate need. And they went home and they prayed about it and they thought about it and they put the property up for sale. And when they were able to return to that congregation on the next Sunday, they were able to say to that person with holes in his sleeves and obviously in need, they were able to say, Brother, I've got something for you. And they were able to share. And as there is need, I think that the day may come. The day may come again, maybe in our lifetime, where the true metal of believers will be found. I do not believe 
that you necessarily have to um, liquidate all of your assets today and have the money jingling in your pocket and looking around for need. There may be opportunities like that and times where God would, would impress that upon your heart. But I believe that the day may come where the church is under persecution again. And you will discover that in China, they may have only had a bowl of rice. But if they found a Christian brother in need, they would share the bowl of rice with that Christian. How do you think that the underground church survived? when the communist object was to, to annihilate all vestiges of Christianity in China, why are there millions, literally millions, of believers in China today? It's a very simple answer. The answer is that the people helped each other. They went back to the book of Acts because at that particular time of need, the only way they could survive is by one person who may be able to come up with a few, uh, a few bowls of rice did not hoard it for himself, but rather gave it to others. And so even though there, there is uh, uh, all kinds of persecution, even is today, all kinds of persecution for that underground church, yet it thrived uh, during that quarter of a century of communist dictatorship. And they did it on the basis of mutual help. How do you think the Christians survive in Russia? They have a network of giving that is unbelievable. They can't take an offering in a, with an offering plate in a nice building like some of us can. But what they can do is pass it from hand to hand to make sure that everyone has what they need. And God is using this method even today, and he may have to use it with us someday. The problem is that, that, that I, if, if I have any kind of a feel for the American church, I am afraid that they're going to have the first few years of that kind of persecution would be a very rough thing because most Christians have never learned this principle. And the principle is simply this, that if you see a need, you are appointed as a committee of one to do what you can to help the need. See it? Never was a matter of doing something corporately or in a dictatorship manner, but rather just responding to need. You'll notice in, the, in 1 Corinthians, Paul never says, you all go out and sell all your property and give it all to the poor, did he? No, sir. He says, you lay by in store as God has prospered you. So you can give according to need. Now, in addition to that, you need to say that it's a matter of faithful stewardship. It's a matter of faithful stewardship. Luke chapter 16, verse 11. Luke 16 and verse 11. Uh, he's talking here about faithfulness. Verse 10, he who is faithful in very little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. If, therefore, you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, the material things of life, 
you have not been faithful in that, who will entrust the true riches to you? How can you expect to be faith? How can you expect God to trust you with the responsibilities of leadership, the responsibilities of a spiritual uh, help to others, committing lives into your hands, when you have been unfaithful in the in the petty matter? of the few sultry dollars that you have week by week or month by month. I'll never forget having, uh, getting the shock of my life. I, uh, my, my mother and father, as we've told you before, never had very much. But they were always faithful in giving to God. Uh, they were recipients of the generosity and the faithfulness of God's people. And because of that, they recognized that they too had a very keen obligation. And they were very, very generous. The amount of money that my parents gave out of their sultry uh, income uh, was absolutely astounding. My parents would do things for people. Uh, I, I was just, you know, astounded by it. Well, the thing, by the way, they always gave it to people who could do nothing to repay it. You know, they gave a lot of it anonymously. And, uh, you know, my dad didn't make enough to have to worry with five kids and all that. He didn't have to make enough. He didn't make enough to have to worry about income tax anyway. So the deduction didn't mean a thing. So he just uh, often gave anonymously just because people had a need and nobody ever knew where it came from. And the folks were faithful in sharing with us kids what we were doing because we were helping make the sacrifice. We weren't always happy about it. I would have rather had a new bicycle, you know. But nevertheless, uh, we, were, we were kept informed. But anyway, it was later on, after I was in the gospel ministry, it never occurred to me to, to uh, do anything but, but give. In fact, I remember one year we were figuring out our income tax and somehow or another, inadvertently, uh, we had skipped a month in giving. And I look back on that, and that probably was the month where the check turned out pretty good, you know, and we probably wondered where all that money come from. But somehow or another, we only had, we gave monthly, and, and uh, we, we looked, and, you know, here we, we only had 11 receipts. And something had gone wrong, you know. And I remember I felt so bad about that, not because it was legalistic, just because, my goodness, how could I, how could I neglect such an important thing? And so that was my attitude. I went to a pastor's conference, and in the process of the pastor's conference, they got talking about tithing and they got talking about giving, and they all agreed that their people should, should uh, give to God. And uh, then one of the guys got real honest. He said, I got to be frank with you. And the little bit of salary they give me, he said, I can't afford to give. I thought, this is a pastor talking. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And then they started talking. And this whole bunch of them said, well, I, you know what I do? I tithe my time. That's what I, I tithe my time. And uh, I don't, uh, I don't uh, give any money because I don't have enough to make ends meet anyway. But I give a little extra time and that makes up for that. And it's, uh, time is money and so on and so forth. And these guys were rationalizing this whole thing. 
I sat there and I, I was a young pastor. I thought to myself, how in the world can God trust these men in the ministry when they are so faithless in regard to a silly thing like a few dollars? I, I, at that time, was too young to speak up. And I didn't say anything. But I went home and I made up my mind that I was going to give more than ever. <laughs> I didn't want to be like them. <laughs> Whatever example they were given, I didn't want that example. I'll tell you, it is a tragedy in this day and age that so many people have rationalized the fact that they don't have to give. But it, it is a matter of faithful stewardship. Turn over a couple of pages from Luke uh, 16 over to Luke 19 and look at verse 17 through 19. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, a matter of money. Be in authority over ten cities. Second came, gave back his mina, made five minas, said to him also, You will be over five cities. Another said, Master, behold your mina, which I kept. I put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you were an exacting man. You take up what you do not lay down, and reap what you do not sow. And said to him, By your own words I will judge you. You worthless slave, did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down, and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put the money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. He said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him. Give it to the one that has ten minas. And they said to him, But he already has ten minas. I tell you that every one who has shall be given. More shall be given. But from the one who does not have, why? Because he was not a good steward, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. At the time of judgment, there will be a reckoning, and God will know precisely what you are, uh, wh what you have given and what you have not given, and will reward you accordingly. Now, in addition to that, let's add this one. And uh, this touches on something I said a moment ago, but let's take it again. It is not a matter of percentage giving. It is a matter of proportionate giving. Giving proportionate giving. Again, Luke 16 and verse 10. God rewards according to the faithfulness of the individual. He that is faithful in a little thing is faithful also in much. He who is unrighteous in a little thing is unrighteous in much. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verses 2 and 3. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. They gave of their own accord, 
but they gave not only up to what they were able to give, but they went beyond it. Now, if you go beyond what you're able to give, what are you doing? You are, you are sacrificing. That's what you're doing. They, but they gave of their own free will, and they gave it as God had blessed them. I want to say a word about this. In this same text in uh, 2 Corinthians 8, it really kind of hints at least at the idea of um, faith promise. In that, in verse 12, it says, For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable. You know what that means? It means this. When the offering plate is passed in front of you on a given Sunday morning, if you want to give a thousand dollars but honestly do not have the thousand to give as far as God's records are concerned he credits you with a thousand did you know that he looks at your heart sees how much you give but also sees how much you would give if you had it and if you, if you in your heart are, are lamenting the fact that if I had 2,000, I'd give the 2,000. If I had 3,000, I'd give the 3,000. Now be careful of that because God may give you the 3,000 to test it. The tragedy is that most people have a problem at the point of actually giving it. So don't sit there and say, well, I wish I had a million dollars, I'd give the whole million today. And I hope God's going to put that on your record. He, he won't do that because he knows your heart. And he knows good and well, you don't mean that. It's like the woman that came to Spurgeon said, Dr. Spurgeon, I've received an inheritance of 2,000 pounds. 2,000 pounds sterling. A little over $2 per pound. And I want you to know that I am going to give to your orphanage ministry half of that. So Spurgeon thanked her and uh, promptly forgot about the conversation until a few days later when the woman came to him again and says, Oh, Dr. Spurgeon, I have a terrible problem. He said, What's that? He said, she said, Well, she said, I discovered that my inheritance was 20,000 pounds instead of 2,000. And she said, I can't give you half of that. And a lot of people have the same problem. At some point, you no longer have the money. The money has you. And it's at that point that there's a point of jeopardy and a desperate problem. We need to realize that God wants us to see how he's blessed us and give in accordance with that. We're going to have to cut it off right there. We'll come back to it next, no, next time, not next time. I won't be here next week. Bill Zip will be teaching you the following week. I will uh, be back, okay? But I'll be in Portland next week. And uh, pray for me, won't you? We'll be, Gloria and I are going to be pastor in residence at Western Seminary for a week. Uh, and uh, so we, we need uh, to have you pray as we counsel with the students and talk with them and speak to them and teach them classes and all of that good stuff. So you'll be praying with us as we go. Thank you, Father, for your own love and for the opportunity that we have 
just to give praise to your name, how wonderful it is to enter into your presence and just thank you for the God that you are. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us to understand the opportunities that are at our disposal to give. And help us, Lord, to buy up those opportunities and not miss them. We'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.